Obadiah is right after Amos. The book of Obadiah is the fourth minor prophet in our English Bible and the shortest of the Old Testament books. It contains 21 verses. In the New Testament, the shortest books are 2nd and 3rd John. 3rd John being the shorter of the two, 219 words. 3rd John being 245 words. But the shortness of the book does not minimize the authority, you know, the power or the effect that it's to have on our lives. Um, one verse, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, whoever believes in should not perish, but ever last time. You have the whole gospel there. If that's the only verse you had, if that was the Bible, you would need nothing else. It's self-contained. Let's begin by looking at the prophet Obadiah in terms of being one of the twelve. As you know, the minor prophets, prior to the captivity of the northern kingdom by Assyria, they existed and there were six of them. Um, Assyria took captive the northern kingdom, 722 B.C., so you have Obadiah around 845, as we'll see as we move on, and we spoke out this morning. Then you have Joel, which we've covered about 835 B.C. So Obadiah is just slightly a little sooner, though there are some people that believe he's later, and we'll show that. Then you have Jonah, 765 B.C. He goes to Nineveh. Um, Amos, 760 B.C. And Hosea. 740 B.C. Um, Micah, 735 B.C. Then you have the minor prophets prior to the captivity of the southern kingdom by Babylon. 606 to 586. Sometimes you'll have them hyphenated. 605 to 606 on and so forth. I just round them off to the six. Memorize them easier like that. And um, Nahum comes first there at 710 B.C. Then you have Sephaniah, 625 B.C., and Habakkuk in 608 B.C. It would have been nice if they would have put these things just in order as they were in the Bible, and we wouldn't have to worry about it. <laughs> but I guess they want us to use our brain. Then there are... Um, Three minor prophets after the return from captivity of Babylon. And that goes from 536 to 425 B.C. You have Haggai, 520 B.C., Zechariah, in 520 B.C. also, and then Malachi, 430 B.C. And so... All these 12 were put together by a name, by a man named Ezra A-E-I. He gathered the 12 minor prophets in the um, great synagogue around 475 B.C. And he called it the Book of the Twelve. Our Bible distinguishes minor prophets from major prophets, um, which you have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel 
But um, we're told that the title itself is given to the length or the shortness of the books. But if you examine them, as we've made mention before, it's not really a true to form description because Daniel has less chapters than Hosea and Zechariah, and he is in the major prophets. So it's one of the categories by which they use, but it's really not that important, but just to point out the difference there. Now, the minor prophets are in no way less important or inferior to the major prophets. Now, it took us a long time to get through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. They were big books. So you have to kind of oversee the whole introduction and see them wide and broad and then, you know, see how they fit in. The shorter books are a little bit easier in that, in that aspect, in that you can read a book uh, of one chapter, you know, 20 times in a day and, and, and get it in your mind. You can just walk through it and everything else. Where if you get a book like Isaiah, 66 chapters, um, you know, 48 in Ezekiel, and then, you know, you've got to read them in sections. And then hopefully before... Um, you die, you've read each book in one sitting. That means you have to just grab a cup of coffee and go away somewhere where no one's going to bother you and take no phone and get lost until you finish that book. Okay? So you get a wide sense of it. But um, this gives you a little perspective on major and minor prophets, but they're all in the major league. They're all as, as, as uh, anointed, as authoritative. Every one of them contain God's word. Now, as you know, the man Obadiah, um, he is a man like anybody else. He's anointed by God. He writes 21 verses here that contain um, um, God's judgment towards Edom. And all that we know about this man is within this book and not much is known about him at all you know when you arrive at a crime scene um, policemen will rope it off if it's a house they'll secure it because they know that all the evidence is within the crime scene and they have to have a good eye to search for everything for clues all that we can know about Obadiah is what we find in his book Unless we can find a cross-reference or a prophet that would quote him, then we can supplement that from somewhere else. And so when you read commentaries, sometimes you're impressed by the commentary because this guy says, well, you know, Obadiah did this and that or whatever. And you go, my, but where did he get that? If he didn't get it from the book of Obadiah or a quote or something where it's found somewhere else in the Bible, it's pure opinion. It's absolutely worthless. So it's always important that you read the manuscript, the original first, and then judge the commentary by what is in Obadiah or Zechariah or anything else. And it's the same when you listen to somebody that you, you hear something, put a question mark there, they go search it out. And, and so that you make sure that it is the plumb line, the word of God that is being the standard. Now, the prophet Obadiah excludes many of the normal things, genealogies, the mention of kings, either northern or southern, so we don't really know the time. The lack of information fits his name very good. He's a servant of Yahweh, 
Because really, he's just transparent. He's not the focus. And, and that should really be the message for each of our lives, that we never bring attention to ourselves and that we be like that broken vessel that Paul speaks about that God has put in us, that uh, treasure and the vessel that the excellence may be of God, not of ourselves. Kind of like Joshua that puts the uh, lantern in the pot and then uh, all at one time everybody breaks the pot and what is seen as the light and the big proclamation, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon, and then God put panic in all the people. And it's often that we get enamored with the vessel that that the problem becomes uh, for those people that are looking upon us because we, we bring so much attention to ourselves that we people are, can't really look to the Lord or concentrate on the Lord. And so it's important that all of us, we understand that because God wants to get all the glory and not anybody else. And if there's anything, anything good that ever comes from your life and mine, if you ever accomplish anything for the glory of God, if God uses you to do everything, it's always His glory. God is never impressed with me. Ever. He's merciful to me. He's kind to me. He's patient with me. But He's never impressed with me. (laughs) We are but dust, the Bible says. It's just His mercy and His kindness towards us. And He loves us in a way that we just will never understand completely until we get there. And we're like Him. The beauty of that name then is in that, that he's transparent. These 12 individuals that fit into these minor prophets um, are very key people. And um, Obadiah is no different than that. There's about 12 men that bear his name. You can find them all the way in Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah. You can search them on your computer, type it in. Many have tried to identify this one through a Levite in First Chronicles 17.7, but it's, it, it's useless. No one knows who he is. Um, he was just a faithful servant. But he's also called a seer from the perspective of the scriptures because a prophet is one who saw things of the future. And again, he didn't come across them because of his intellect, his wisdom. Even Daniel, who was um, uh, given the gift of of, uh, of, 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 of dreams and interpretation. It was God who gave it to him and made him wise and not because of all the studying he did in the school of the Chaldeans. Uh, in fact, he surpassed all of them and he revealed things that none of them could because it was God who enabled him. So Obadiah um, stated here in verse 1 that uh, he had seen a vision and that vision is while uh, he is awake, God is communicating his mind. And um, a dream is while you're asleep. And again, Daniel um, uh, interpreted dreams, and he had visions also, and many of the prophets. And um, Samuel, Gad, and Judathon are called seers. First uh, Samuel nine nine, Second Samuel twenty four eleven, and Second Chronicles thirty five, um, fifteen, and so um, these individuals were were those who God reached out. Uh, we have uh, many prophets that we write in the, we read in the scriptures. They weren't writing prophets. Elijah and Elisha, uh, they didn't write books, but the ones that we have here were those that God had chosen for that. Why he chose some and not others, we have no idea. Now, 
He received the vision of judgment against Edom, and it was directly from God, verse 1 tells us. So this was not a personal um, um, vision or, or communique that came from his own, but from God. And the phrase does say, the Lord indicates the authority behind it. In the origin, it's totally a God thing. Um, you look at the book of Revelation, you read all that, and some people just... You know, they come up with all kinds of weird interpretations and it's all subjective and yet it's God's revelation of his plan and, and, and he lays it all out. And uh, it's not from man. The content of the vision here reveals most likely that um, Obadiah again was from the southern kingdom. Uh, he mentions Jerusalem, uh, your brother uh, Judah. And... Um, He's just a faithful, faithful uh, prophet. So this is the prophet Obadiah. Now, the particular time of Obadiah, um, as far as a date, um, there's very little that leads us to a date. It's very difficult, as we said this morning, because it doesn't have the normal things that we have already mentioned, dates, kings, and all that. Um, the only key is there in verse 10 through 14 that we get a, a similar uh, a semblance of, of their crimes against the, um, the southern kingdom. Um, there are five recorded times that Jerusalem experienced such plunder, uh, but only two dates really hold to any sort of credence, and we'll make that mention this morning, 845 B.C., and then you have the eight. Uh, the 586 B.C. of, of Babylon. But Babylon is, uh, is too late. The earlier one is the one that, that fits um, better. Um, though it is amazing that those people do, that go for the 586. You're talking about, you know, way down the road. And yet Jeremiah, as we'll see later on as we move through the study, uh, some of the things, the comparisons of, uh, of Jeremiah to Obadiah, even in Joel and Amos, there's a comparison. And so Jeremiah really is quoting um, Obadiah and not the reverse. And so looking at all that and comparing them, it makes a difference. The, the similarities of Obadiah, by the way, is there are um, quotes and similarities between the ones that I just mentioned. In Obadiah and Joel, if you look at Joel, um, uh, when you get home, just job Joel um, 115, 117, 232, 317, and compare to Obadiah 15. You see a similarity there. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen as you have done. It shall be done unto you. Your reward shall return upon your head, on your own head. And so there's a great similarity. Uh, there's also Joel is known as the prophet of the Lord. As you've seen as we've gone through it, which um, he uh, mentions five times in the book of Joel. And the phrase refers to God's intervention of the world order to pour out his wrath and judgment on the ungodly world and set up his kingdom, the millennial kingdom. Seven years of tribulation, great tribulation, and then the thousand year millennial that occupies the millennial kingdom, the day of the Lord plus the white throne judgment. So once again, the day of the Lord has a beginning and it has an end and there's a lot of events that fit into that, beginning with the rapture, the attack of Ezekiel 38, 39, Israel, 
the appearance of the Antichrist. Um, you have the first three and a half years of um, false peace. You have the setting up of the temple. You have abomination of desolation. Then you have Israel fleeing to the wilderness as the remnant, to Petra, to Selah. You have the three and a half years of great tribulation such as never has been. And it would be better that you die than to live in those days. Jesus will be coming back. You have the, you have the um, battle of Armageddon. And then Jesus, um, from that point on, sets up the judgment of the nations in Matthew 25. Judges the nations, how they dealt with the Jew. Then he, be, he sets up the millennial kingdom. Then while that millennial kingdom is going on, you have Satan that's bound in the bottom of the spirit with the chain. And then at the end of the thousand years, he lets them loose again as the last rebellion. And then you have the white throne judgment. All of that is in the day of the Lord. You have all these events. And so um, you have a lot of similarities. And Job, as we said, was the prophet that is believed to have coined that phrase. Obadiah 15 may be the first and the earliest appearance about 10 or so years before Joel. So they're very, very close. This eschatological term runs through the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, as you know, focusing on the last times or the last days. It's all through the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, Second Peter, Revelation. You have Isaiah, you have Jeremiah, you have Ezekiel, you have all most of the minor prophets. And Obadiah and Amos as uh, also has a similarity with Obadiah here, verse nineteen, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and of all the heathen which are called by my name, says the Lord, that does this. Amos uh, 9.12. So you have a similarity there. And again, God, sometimes they quote each other, and sometimes God just gave similar things to different people um, at different times. And there's also the similarity between Obadiah and Jeremiah. And Jeremiah quotes Obadiah in great measure. You get home, read Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 7 to 22. Um, he mentions there in verse 7 the wisdom of Teman. You remember Teman. Um, the uh, Eliphaz, the Timonite that I mentioned this morning that came to be one of the comforters of Job. They were known for their wisdom. Uh, they were there in the area of, of, of Edom. Uh, the calamity um, being brought by God himself in verse 8. And then God had uncovered Esau's secret place in verse 10. Edom's pride and overconfidence in her source of protection as she made her nest as an eagle, verse 16, Jeremiah. So when you examine all those things and you look to the scriptures here, the one chapter, you see the similarities uh, of um, of both books. So Obadiah is believed to be quoted by Jeremiah and not the reverse. The comparison convinces uh, many that Obadiah prophesied again in 845 B.C. Again, his contemporaries would have been Elijah and Elisha. Okay, through the time of Jezebel and Ahab and that horrible time. So this was uh, the period of Obadiah. There are some that will put her 
put Obadiah a little bit further back to the um, the reign of Athaliah. Remember when she killed all the seed royal? And, and there's some some that go with that route. But again, whether we can actually place a prophet in the right place exactly or not, that is not the important thing. The important thing is what is the content of his message? What is it warning me about? What is instru- instructing me? What is it that is to be obeyed in God. That's the most important thing. Because for every generation, the word of God is applicable. Not only historically, but instructionally in terms of exhortation or warning for every one of us. Now, the prophetic division of Obadiah is is real simple. You have um, the destruction of Edom from verse 1 to 16. Uh, verse 1 through 9, you have Edom's doom. It's uh, a prophecy of judgment. And then 10 through 16, you have Edom's deeds, all the evil deeds that they did against the southern kingdom. Then you have the second half, the salvation of Israel, which runs from verse 17 to verse 21. And 17 and 18, you have the promise to Mount Zion, and this is a repeated theme in this last section of God dealing again with Israel. We saw it in the other minor prophets, we see it in the major prophets, we see it as a, a constant topic in the New Testament. God is not through with Israel. Jesus said, Blessed is, He says, You shall not see me henceforth till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, if Jesus said that Israel's going to see him and say, Blessed is you come in the name of the Lord, trust me, God is not through with Israel. He was talking to Israel, not the church. So, we reject replacement theology, which majority of churches teach, Christian colleges and universities, and certainly many seminaries teach that. And it's an absolute lie. It's never found in Scripture at all. And um, so this last section in uh, the promise to Mount Zion 17 and 18, and then the possession of the land in verse 19 through 21. And notice it's the possession of the land. The land belongs to Israel. The land and the people belong together, just like peanut butter and jam, like tortillas and beans, and that's just the way it goes. You can't separate them, okay? Um, Let me give you some key verses. Um, You have the deception of Edom. Um, in, in verse 3. Verse 3 says, um, The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who dwell in the cleft of the rock, whose habitation is high, you who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? <laughs> Trusting in your own ability, your, your fortress, uh, whatever it may be. Um, verse 6. He says, Oh, how Esau shall be searched out, how his hidden treasures shall be sought after. So, here again in verse 6, God knows everything, nothing's hidden from him, and that which they had taken through theft would be removed for them also. Then you have verse 11, the treachery of of Edom. Um, He says, in that day, uh, in the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried captive uh, his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. 
So the treachery, remember that Edom and Israel were related through Esau and Jacob. The focus here is on, na- on nations. Certainly the individual will come up, but it's the nations that he's coming against. And uh, Paul will pick that up also in Romans chapter 9, verse 13, as a, a choosing by God of the nation of Israel, rejecting the nation of Edom. Because God understands exactly what was going to happen. And so it's not individual salvation, but prophetic of the nations. Then in verse 15, he says, For the day of the Lord is upon all the nations, is near, and you, as you have done, it shall be done to you. you your reprisal shall return upon your head. So the principle of sowing and reaping. You know, um, every one of us have choices through life, and the choices we make will often result in the return. It's like investments. If you have a good portfolio and you make right choices, you know, you're going to get a return. If you make risky investments and that you might get rich, but you just might lose it all. If you make good choices, moral choices, ethical choices, then you're going to be on the safe side. You make bad choices, ethical or moral. There are consequences that return to us. No one can escape this, whether you're a believer or a non-believer. It's straight across the board. One more, verse 20, um, 21. He says, Then Savior shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau in the kingdom shall be the Lord's. That which Jesus told his disciples to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. The whole aspect that we're looking for is for the kingdom to be established, but not for the church. We want his kingdom to come, but we're going to rule and reign with him. Israel is looking for an earthly kingdom. The church is looking for a heavenly kingdom. There's another difference. The wife has been put away, Israel, by divorce. For unfaithfulness. The bride is a virgin, Jew and Gentile, one in Christ Jesus, looking for a wedding. There's a big difference. Israel is looking for an earthly kingdom. The church is looking for a heavenly kingdom. So there's all kinds of contrasts. You can't confuse the two. And he makes it very, very clear. Now, the people prophesied against by Obadiah are the Edomites. The Edomites were descendants of Esau, as I mentioned. And uh, they were twins in the womb. They were fighting even there. And, uh, you know, their mother, Rebecca, wasn't feeling too good about the pregnancy. And she inquired of the Lord. And he says, there are two nations in you in Genesis 25. And, uh, you know, one is a nation that God is going to rule over and, 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 and create an incredible nation. And then the other one is one that wants nothing to do with God. And again, nothing catches God by surprise. He isn't shocked. He doesn't say, wow, I didn't know Esau was going to do that. God understands everything. So within the realm that God predestines, if you will, or God declares certain things, it doesn't mean that, that whatever God has declared in, in, in certain points of decrease, that nothing can alter. Because there's always the aspect of free will in man. 
Now, nothing that I do can alter the ultimate purposes of God. There are certain things that God says are going to happen and nothing in the world can change them. The first coming, the second coming, the coming of the Antichrist, the building of the temple, and many other things. Those are absolutely going to happen. But the actors, the people, they have a free will to be participants of of and with God or rejecting God. And for there to be judgment, adequate judgment, perfect judgment by a holy God, there must be a choice by the individual. If there is no choice, then there cannot be true judgment. So in other words, if God forces you by decree to do something evil, then how can God judge you for the evil that you do? Judas Iscariot is a perfect example. He is called a son of perdition. The only other one is the Antichrist. And yet, God didn't predestine Judas Iscariot to betray his son. Because if God didn't give him a choice, if he had no free will, and God judged him for something he decreed him to do and couldn't do anything but what God decreed, then God is ultimately responsible for the sin of Judas Iscariot. So which way you want it? <laughs> there must be a choice. God is always holy. God is always right. And if there is no choice, then God has to be the cruelest person in the world. And he can't be good and he can't be fair. I don't read in the garden where he tells Adam, you know, you can have anything except that one. And if you touch that one, you're going to die. And, and then he says, well, I'm going to touch it. God says, no, you can't touch it. No, God gave him the freedom. But God meant what he said. The day you touch it, you partake of it. You're going to certainly die. So you have one of two choices. Either God predestined the fall and he's responsible for sin. Or God knew about the fall and he gave Adam a choice. And Adam is responsible for the fall. I go with Adam. <laughs> Hands down. There are people who declare that God is responsible for the fall. He decreed the fall. That's Calvinistic theology. They write it in their books. Because nothing can happen apart God's decrees. Well, if nothing can happen apart from God's decrees, then we might as well just go home. And why pray for sinners? Everybody's going to be saved if they're predestined. Why do outreaches? Why waste our time? Let's just be saved and buckle up and wait for God to come. Such is not the doctrine of the Bible. We're to occupy till he comes. And so the Edomites here, um, Esau's descendants here, the nation. Um, Esau's a very rugged type of guy and um, he was kind of a favorite of his dad's and um, Jacob, his mom, and so there was always that contention, sort of, and and Rebecca kind of went along with it. And as you know, she um, uh, she really probably magnified the bitterness and the, and the hatred between them in many ways. And so the father also. And so there's instruction for us as parents that we be careful when we raise our children. Our children are different as night and day. 
And we shouldn't favor one over the other. Now, I may have to deal with one more severe than the other, but it doesn't mean that I love one more than the other. It means that because I do love them equally and I see weaknesses or or frailties in one, that I love them so much that I will confront and spend time and more prayer with one than the other. If If you're a good teacher then you don't spend all your time with good students. You spend time with bad students. Right? And so it's, it's, it's a measure of your love, of your dedication. And yet we think just the opposite so often. Um, later, Jacob, as you know, deceives his dad in uh, Genesis 27 and 28 at the Council of Rebekah. And it cost him dearly. He thought he would see his mom, but he never did. Uh, 20 years went by and then she was dead. And again, she was responsible for that, but he obeyed her. He should have obeyed God. From the beginning, they knew that God said that the older would be served by the younger or the, the reverse. Okay, the older would serve the younger. And, and, and she wanted to meddle with God's word. And she brought great affliction to him, but he's responsible too for paying heed, right? And so, as I've told you often, we will never know how God would have brought it about. Because Rebecca got in the way. But he ended up getting the blessing. But not the way God would have done it. We don't know. So, in retaliation, as Esau saw this animosity of his parents' approval over Jacob, then he... um, he married some heathen wives and even married the daughters of Ishmael in Genesis 28, 6 through 9. Just to get back. You see, that's what happens when you have divisions, you have favoritisms. Many times children or parents, they'll just do things that just hurt each other. Just get back at each other. And that's our sin nature. None of us can get away from that. Now, being born again, we can, uh, we can resist this and ask the Lord to help us acknowledging our our frailty, our, our sinful bent towards that, and that God would cleanse us, and that God would fill us, and that God would help us, and that God would just have mercy on us, and that we cast ourselves upon the throne of God. Because if we don't, sin nature is very, very strong. And if I don't yield to the life of the Spirit, I will walk in the flesh. It's A or B. There is no C. You cannot be a, a, a 50-50 bar, a pancake half done. It, it doesn't work. And so, um, after 20 years, Jacob comes back. He's afraid of Esau. He remembers this threat. I'm going to kill him when my dad's dead. But God sent him back. God had blessed him. He has these wives and all these kids. But God humbled Jacob during those 20 years (laughs) in many different ways. And then, as you know, the meeting, you know, he divided his camp and Esau ended up falling on his neck and crying. And and it was sort of like a, like a, a reconciliation without complete reconciliation because it didn't last. There was hatred in the nation all the way through. You know, as I said this morning, like the Hatfield and McCoys, you know, of old, that, you know, it's just family thing, and that's just the way it is. 
uh, the Edomites occupied that uh, area of Mount Seir. It's where you take the line of the Jordan River straight down that goes into the Dead Sea. It's on the east side, modern-day Jordan. And you have there Ammon, Moab, and, and the Edom, um, Edom, Edomites, and all three of them were on that side. And um, it's also called Seir, or uh, Seir the Horite, which means rock-dwelling. Um, Seir and Esau both mean hairy. Edom means red. And it's interesting when you, at sundown, when you're over there in the Dead Sea and you look across from Israel's side, the sundown, it, it reflects on the red mountains of, 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 uh, of Jordan and, and, and the sea looks kind of red. And so this whole aspect of red and hairy, and it all ties together here in, in, the, um, in the nation. Now, the ancient capital was Bozrah, a few miles um, south of the Dead Sea. But um, in Obadiah's day, the capital was the famous city of Petra or Sila. Uh, any of you have gone to Petra here in Israel trip? Okay. It's, it, it's a great place. If you ever get a chance, at least go once. Uh, I, I wouldn't reckon more than once. It's, it, you got to put up with the meat-eating uh, flies of Jordan. Um, you don't want to eat anything in Jordan because you'll get sick for the rest of your trip. So you take some jerky and some bottled water and you suck it up. And then you, when you get back to Israel, then you can eat something. You know, one trip we were down there, and I tell the people over and over again, do not eat anything over there. I don't care what, where it is. And the water, don't drink it. And we're coming back and we walk in this hotel and I see these guys, ice in a glass. Their ice is water. Or a salad, they wash it with that water. Oh, they got sick. So, you know, you just got to be careful. Uh, when you're in Israel, you can eat anything you want. You just have to be careful when you go to the Arab quarters, the old city. Um, otherwise, you fall in the same place. But Sila here, Petra, a beautiful red roll city. The, have you seen the Transformers? There they use Petra. You know, where the two little uh, uh, robot things get in a fight right there and they uh, discover uh, where uh, they had hidden the thing behind the wall. That's the first thing you see when you come into the Snake Canyon and you see this beautiful um, treasury bank, if you will. And um, you have 200-foot-high cliffs and it's like an S entrance, um, maybe a, not even an eighth of a mile um, first time we went in the late 70s, you rode in on a horse in the early 80s. Now you, you can walk in, it's blacktopped and all that. But uh, And along the walls of the 200-foot precipice and that, there's grooves on it. So when the rain hit it, they would have gutters and they collect their water, see? You have the same thing in Masada. When you go to Masada, um, you, you have a lot of um, cisterns under Masada and the water runs off the side and collects too and it goes right into the cisterns because it's a very arid area and there's not much rain so you collect all the water you can during that time in cisterns. And so the Red Roll City of Petra is very important in that area and we know that it will have another great part in God's plan as, um, as God has his remnant of the Jews during the Great tribulation when the Antichrist goes into the temple that he will build for them and declare himself God. 
uh, Jesus said that when you see the abomination of desolation spoke by Daniel the prophet in Matthew 24, 15, flee to the wilderness. He's talking to the Jews in Matthew. The audience of Matthew are Jews. The Jews go through the tribulation to prepare them for their Messiah. And so they will flee. Isaiah 16, verse uh, 1 through 3 says to hide them for a time. And God will protect Israel. And then at the end, after he returns in the battle of Armageddon, then he will recover the rest from all over the world and the remnant, the rest of it. And so the Edomites, um, this is their background. They've become very bitter against Israel. Their history as they were coming out of Egypt. They, did, they asked for petition through the land. They wouldn't allow them. They promised they wouldn't touch anything, water, food, unless they pay for it. They didn't give them passage. They were just uh, real bitter. Um, all the prophets uh, exposed the bitterness and the hatred and the animosity of of the uh, nation of Edom against Israel. In um, Malachi chapter 1, verse um, 2 and 3 says, um, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I have hated. He's talking about the nations. Okay, Paul picks it up in Romans 9.13. It goes back to, Math, to Genesis 25. In your womb are two nations. That's the context, not individual salvation. And so, in Psalm 137, I read this morning, verse 7, how the psalmist uh, there, the captives in Babylon, reminded God of how Edom gloated at the captivity and the destruction of Jerusalem. Raise it, raise it to destroy it. Herod, the last Edomite, he wanted to kill Jesus. Remember in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1 when the wise men came and they said we're seeking king of the Jews. Well, Herod couldn't stand any competition. Another king in town? <laughs> and he tried to kill. He killed all the infants. Herod Antipas, his uh, son, beheaded John the Baptist. Herod Agrippa, his other son, killed James with the sword. Uh, you have it in Matthew fourteen ten and Acts twelve one. So the Edomites have a very long history of, of the hate for the people of God. You have the same sentiment today with Iran. Um, the Islamic confederacy of nations that just have pledged their hate of Israel. 70 AD, the Edomites became extinct. There are no Edomites today. None at all. They represent a type of the flesh. Um, Esau is a profane person. Um, he attempted to secure the blessing of God. Without repentance, Hebrews twelve seventeen says, he was just interested in the blessing. He really wasn't convicted of his sin against God. And that's always a problem. And we always have to search our hearts to realize that we acknowledge our sinfulness and the sin that's against God first and against somebody or with somebody and not just merely the consequences of that sin uh, because that's remorse and that's not true biblical repentance. And so... Um, the message here, the prophecy, the hatred uh, of, of this relationship between um, Edom and Israel. 
The prophecy of Obadiah, again, let me just run through it as we move through the two divisions. In chapter 1, verse um, 1 through 16, you have that prophetic um, destruction that's coming against Edom, the judgment. Uh, verse 1 through 4, you have the certainty of the doom. God had begun to stir up the nation against Edom and God would abase them and cause them to be abhorred. It would be God's hand against them. God revealed Edom's downfall, their prideful heart. Verse 3, her place of residence was her security, Petra. Her boast was arrogant. Pride is the source of all evil. Read the Proverbs. God hates pride. It's the first sin of seven list of sins that he hates. Pride deceives and blinds man. Allows our weakness to think it's strength. We trust that strength instead of God. And they were trusting in the fortress of Petra. Jesus was, uh, was very concerned about uh, how people treated the Jew. In fact, in Matthew 25, you know that he judges the nations first. And he says, uh, when you did it to the least of my brethren, the Jew... You did it to me. A cup of cold water. You visited him in prison. The context there in Matthew is the Jew. God will judge the nations on how they treat the Jew during the Great Tribulation. Now, the city of Petra was discovered in 1812 by uh, John Ludwig uh, Burkhardt, a Swiss explorer. Uh, it's an incredible place. Like I said, if you ever get a chance to get there, go. Now, the severity of the doom in verse 5 through 9, men... Um, might stop short, but God would leave nothing, verse 5 says. Um, you know, sometimes people break in and, you know, they don't take everything, just the essential things. And some people just take it all. And God says that um, he would not fall short. In verse 6, God will search out her hidden sin and, and um, uh, her stolen treasures would be uh, taken from her. In verse 7, God declared that those, they... Uh, they knew would turn on them. So here in their confidence, thinking that they are the, you know, the, the, the big junkyard dog in town, um, those aligned with them in verse 7 would oppress uh, them to their borders. Uh, those who were at peace with them would deceive them and prevail against them. Those who ate with them would plot against them and they wouldn't even know it. In verse 8, God would destroy the wise men of, from Edom. Verse 9, God declared that the mighty men of um, Timon would be destroyed. Once again, Eliphaz the Timonite, Job 4.1. Isaiah declared, is wisdom no more in Timon? Jeremiah 49.7. They were known for wisdom. In verse 10 down to 16, you have the deeds of Edom, in verse 10, they were treacherous. 14, 10 down to 14. In 10, they were violent against their brothers. Their outcome would be their shame. Their punishment would be to be cut off forever. Vengeance results from bitterness. Vengeance keeps us from repentance. Vengeance that is righteous belongs only to God. Romans 12, 19 through 20. 
I mean, our sinful nature loves to get even. The law said eye for eye, tooth for tooth, right? Wound for wound. And so many people think that that is a command. No, it isn't. It's a limitation on your evil. In other words, if someone knocked a tooth out of a slave, they could only knock one tooth, tooth for tooth, not ten of them. It was a meat of justice. It's a limitation on you because if you knock one tooth out, the other guy wants to knock ten of yours out. So it's not a command. One time I had a husband in my office and he's going on and on and, you know, he's just carnal and everything else. And he says, yeah, you know, I believe eye for eye, two for two. Really? Do you know what that means? That's a limitation on your evil. Not a command to get more. And we twist things. Verse 11. They were heartless. They were observing Jerusalem siege from the other side of Jordan as enemies entered the gates. The place of authority, the place where the elders were, the kings, the judges. There were those who besieged the city, the enemies of Israel. Who were they? They were brothers. The nations came from the same womb. Twins. Look at 12. They were pleased in themselves. They gazed and they gloated over their calamity. They rejoiced over Judah's calamity and they spoke proudly in their distress. Thirteen, they were without compassion. They entered the gates during Judah's destruction. No sympathy. They delighted by gloating in their affliction. They laid hands on their possessions. Now all of us have lived long enough to know what it is to hate somebody or to want to see evil come to somebody when we're in the world. And when they got there, man, did we have a great day. Our heart is evil. And when we become Christians and, and, and we know that that is our tendency and we say, Lord, help me, help me, please help me. Because I know the thoughts that I have, if they're not what God has, and they're not pleasing to God. And there's a very great danger when all of a sudden we don't care for our thoughts and we just let them run everywhere. And I have to be careful of that. And you and I are the first to know when my thoughts are not pleasing to God. And I have to cry, Lord, please forgive me. Lord, help me. And as long as that goes on, God is pleased. Because I'm acknowledging my evil and I'm asking him to help me. And I don't want to go there. And I'm asking him to strengthen me and that I might yield to his strength. And that's why we're commanded to put on the whole armor of God, to be filled with the power of his mind, to bring our thoughts into captivity, to not walk in the flesh, but to walk in the spirit, to reckon the old man dead, put on the new man, put on the mind of Christ and do good warfare. Every day of my life, there hasn't been one day in the last 42 years that I've been able to kick back. Not one. I've had to depend on the Lord. They were betrayers, verse 14. They set roadblocks to slay those who escaped 
and they turn others over to the enemy. 15 and 16, their deeds of Edom here would be recompensed. In 15, the recompense is compared to the day of the Lord. That's not good. That's the day of God's wrath. Ezekiel 25, 12 through 13 confirms this. The proclamation is twofold, short-term and long-term. Short-term in the judgment that's coming in the days of Obadiah to Edom. Long-term is looking to the great tribulation. The day of the Lord. God's wrath, indignation, darkness. The woes that you read through scripture. Joel chapter 1, chapter 3, Zephaniah chapter 1, Amos chapter 5, just to mention a few over and over and over again. All nations are included, by the way, and the principle of sowing and reaping applies to everyone, Christian or non-Christian, in Galatians 6, 7 through 8. So God will not be mocked, whatever man sows, that shall he also reap. If you sow to the flesh, you reap to the flesh. If you sow to the spirit, you reap to the spirit. And so, you know, uh, each of us make those decisions every day. If I think upon God, if I'm reading the word, if I'm, um, I'm singing praise to the Lord, then those thoughts are captivating my mind and all that. And, and, and then it, it, the spirit's going to minister unto me. And I'm going to, oh, Lord, and I just become more like Christ. But if my mind and, and the music or whatever it is that I'm thinking about is the worldly stuff, then that's going to trigger things off too. And then it, it, I'm going to reap from that, right? You eat good food. You're healthy. You eat bad food, you're going to be unhealthy, right? It's simple. You drink clean water, it's going to be good for you. Dirty water, you're going to get sick. It's just basic. So Edom has celebrated in drink on Mount Zion. But to their own destruction, verse 16. And so the nations... At the end of the Great Tribulation. Short term, long term. 300 B.C. the Edomites were taken by the Nevitian Arabs. In 165 B.C. Judas Macher, uh, Maccabeus took uh, the Hebrews. Uh, or took over um, the um, uh, Edomites there. Um, and uh, Hebron was their capital at that time. And he uh, overcome them. And in 126 B.C., John Hyrcanus um, subdued the Edomites and uh, humbled them and uh, circumcised them as Jews. And uh, the last Edomite again, as we said this morning, is Herod. And after him, there is no more. Uh, there is interesting some scriptures that declare that the nation of Edom, will, God will bring back in the last days, which is interesting. There's a lot of things that we don't understand in scripture, and that's one of them. Now, 17 through 21, you have the message and the prophetic vision of the salvation now towards Israel. Here again, God has a future date for Israel. Okay, If, if once again, these were the only verses I had regarding that God is going to deal with Israel, I don't need any more. All I need is one. If I have one, I cannot believe in replacement theology. If God promises Israel a future date, the remnant. I cannot explain it away. I cannot rationalize it. I cannot interpret it subjectively. I have to let the scripture speak for itself. And so, in 17, Israel will be saved on Mount Zion. Okay? 
Not the San Gabriel Mountains, not Mount Rushmore, but Mount Zion. The promise of salvation is that the return of Jesus, Israel shall be saved, Israel shall be holiness of the Lord, and Israel shall take her possession. God will protect Israel at Petra's we've seen. Israel will flee under the persecution of the Antichrist, and God will protect her as the earth opens up and destroys them, and he holds them safe there. Um, but Zechariah thirteen eight and 9 says that two of three Jews will die under the hand of the Antichrist. That is horrific. That is horrific. That means that Israel still has a darker day than the day of Hitler's Germany. Horrible. This is repeated as a theme throughout all the prophets. The Jews only knew of two ages, the present age, the age to come. That's why they rejected their Messiah. They thought he was going to be a conquering Messiah. They didn't see or have any room for a suffering Messiah. And so the disciples were saying, are you now going to restore the kingdom? Because they had that Jewish mindset. Even after the resurrection and Acts, are you now? No, no, no. And he was around for 40 days ministering unto them, teaching about the kingdom. And they understood it was the church age. Jesus spent time with them. And then he ascended up on high for the Mount of Olives. Ten days after that, he sent the Holy Spirit. 18 is the last, uh, is the last section here. Israel will be exalted and, this, and, and destroy Edom. Um, Jacob and Joseph stand for the nation of Israel, a consuming fire. Esau stands for stubble to be devoured and be no more. And God has spoken it, his authority. God is the defender of his own people. He says, his eye never rests on his land. He looks over it. God judges all who come against her. He judged Egypt severely. You look at the nations that have come against the Jew or Israel and see what has happened to them in history. Genesis 12, 3, those that bless you, I will bless. Those that curse you, I will curse. Our nation has taken a very bad stance against Israel. It's not good. The only good thing I can see about the time that we're in now, there's only one year left. Let's hope it's over. And we can be for Israel again. So God may discipline his people, but no one else can. Just like you. You discipline your kids, that's fine. But if your next door neighbor comes over and starts spanking your kid, there's going to be some trouble. Okay? That's just the way it is. 19 and 20, Israel will uh, possess the land. What a surprise. The mountains, the lowlands, the fields, the lakes, everything will be occupied by the people of God. 19, the land was given to Abraham back in Genesis 13, 14 through 15. The land was uh, ultimately removed from the people because of the refusal to rest in the land. Uh, in Chronicles 36, sent into Babylon, and the people will occupy the land uh, of their enemies. Verse 20 says, the people are back in the land, but the Spirit of God is not on the people. 1948, May 14, they declared their independence for the third time. But Ezekiel 36, 37 is not completely fulfilled. The vision of dry bones, 
The bones are together in the Lamb, but the Spirit of God has not breathed upon them. That will happen in the middle of the tribulation when they recognize the deception of the Antichrist and they look to their Messiah. And so, verse 21, Israel will see the kingdom established. The kingdom speaks of the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, the millennial kingdom. Israel is looking for an earthly kingdom. We are looking for a heavenly kingdom. And... um, the judgment is described in Isaiah 63, 1 through 6, when Jesus returns all of Israel that are true Israel will be gathered by the Lord and they will enter the kingdom. All the Gentiles will serve the Jew that enters the tribulation period who did not take the mark of the beast. You and I, the church, we will reign with Christ. There's a big difference. And so... The Jews will mourn and weep as they see the nail prints in Jesus' hand, recognizing they crucified their own Messiah. Amazing. The Messiah will establish the kingdom, give to Israel all the land, all the blessings that were promised to her. And um, what a day. But even that day in the millennial kingdom, there will still be sin. Not with us, but the people that enter in, because there will be death. And wherever there is sin, there is death. Though the lamb will lay with the lion, though the earth will be redone, and when Jesus steps on the Mount of Olives, it cleaves in two, and from the Jerusalem throne will gush water, one to the Mediterranean Sea, and the other one to the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea will be revived, and there will be fish there and all that. But there will still be people that enter in and they will have to be born again and they will live and they will die just like you and I do right now. We are glorified. That does not include us. And then again, at the end of the thousand years, that's where Satan is released and the white throne judgment. Then we enter the eternal new heaven, new earth. And whatever he has there, it's going to be great. And so, Obadiah, an interesting prophet. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your love, your goodness. Lord, uh, we just thank you for your love and for your word. And we pray that you continue to uh, teach us. And Lord, as we move through your word, that you would allow us to just um, uh, think on these things and to see how good you are, Lord. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. And maybe you're over the Internet. Uh, Jesus uh, became literal sin and God the Father literally judged him. And there was a literal payment made and it wasn't to Satan, it was to God the Father. And there was a literal uh, redemption made for those who call in the name of the Lord and their sins will be forgiven and they shall be saved. And that is simply by grace through faith, not because we deserve it. And if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus and you... See yourself as a sinner, that's a miracle. And if you want to call on his name, acknowledging that he died for your sins, then he will take you at your word, and he will save you, he will forgive you, and he will give to you eternal life. And if that's your desire, this is your prayer of repentance. You can pray to him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with the Holy Spirit.
I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.